Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Revelation 1, 4 through 16. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to God and Father. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come. The Almighty, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in its power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would illuminate your word. Show us the meaning of this text, Lord, today. And may our hearts be enlightened and overjoyed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, when we read those verses, I know at face value, you're probably wondering what it's all about. Is that just uh, fancy, smancy poetry or speech? Um, Is it flowery talk? And the answer is, of course, no. It has an incredible meaning. And first of all, we have to remember that in Revelation 1.1, it's defined in the first verse as the revelation of Jesus Christ. So understand that the book of Revelation reveals Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, till after the end of time continuing onward. And most believers, when they think of the book of Revelation, they think that it only reveals Jesus Christ's righteous judgment when He comes in the future. But that's 
That's wrong. We, we know in Scripture and through this book, we see that He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to establish His earthly kingdom. He will then create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and then followed by eternity with Him forever and ever. Most people think this, prim- this book is primarily about the future, but Revelation is not all about the future. The first chapter is actually about the present. Most importantly to understand, this passage today reveals Jesus Christ in His church, dealing with His church right now in the present. This will be easily understood as we work our way through the passage. But in this passage, we just read that Jesus is described as uh, this. He is seen as the Son of Man, standing in the middle of these lampstands, the living one who was dead, but is now alive forevermore. A faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, a ruler of kings of the earth. He loves us and He released us from our sins by His blood. He made us a kingdom and priests to God the Father. He is the one whom we give glory and dominion forever and ever. He is the one who is coming on the clouds and every single eye will see Him. And those who pierced Him will see Him, and that's a reference to Israel. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So, is there any doubt who this passage is describing? I have no doubt at all. But it pictures Him in His church, in the midst of His church. This is the only scripture actually in the Bible that describes Christ in His church. And that's the passage we'll be covering today. When we consider the state of the church today, sometimes we can be disillusioned um, because of its health, its vibrancy, its impact. But before we move on, I, I want to make something very clear. It's, it's really important for you to grasp before we move forward. There's what we describe as the visible church. You've heard me say it before, the visible church. And this is anyone and everyone who identifies as a Christian, a ministry, a church, a a contemporary Christian singer, anyone who claims it, anyone who wears that badge. And it's the organization uh, of the church, the visible church, comprised of professing believers, not necessarily believers or people living like believers, but professing believers. And they're often the products of just being raised up in church. They're either traditional, they're cultural, and they... They kind of fall all in between when it comes to, uh, you know, being impacted by the cultural trends and and religious beliefs and all of that. And I often criticize this aspect of Christendom. When When you hear me criticize the church, I'm criticizing the visible church. I'm not criticizing His true church. And this is important. Within, within the visible church that larger visible church group, there's a second group of people, the remnant, and they are called His true church. His true church, which are those on the narrow road and not the devout religious on the broad road. They are the wheat among the tares or the weeds described in Matthew 13. And we find that He will leave the wheat among the tares until it's their time for judgment, whether that's death that comes first or whether Christ returns and we stand before Him. 
The Bible describes many of these folks as wolves that had crept in among the flock. Uh, Jared did a great job reading that passage in Jude today. It's all over the Bible. Jesus described in Matthew 7.15 these, these wolves. 2 Peter 2.1, Matthew 24.11, Acts 20.29, 20, 1 John 4.1, Ephesians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.3, 2 Corinthians 11, I could just go on and on because I found over a hundred passages in the Old and New Testament talking about false teachers that come in among the church. And because we have these imposters in the visible church and those who follow them, who, who place their allegiance toward those false teachers, it causes all sorts of problems for the purity and the witness of His true church in the eyes of the unbelieving world. So keep in mind, there is the visible church, and within that large mass of professing believers, within that mass, the, the culture, the marketing, the religion, the tradition, all things with the label Christian, all things wearing the badge Christian, that may or, not, may or may not be Christian, within that huge group of people is His true church. His true church. Does everybody understand that before we move forward? Okay. Ministry can be tough for me at times, especially planting churches. It's a whole different thing than moving into an established church and, and having everything, all, you know, people help you, a secretary, you know, working things out for you and keeping you on track. Uh, but I'm not asking you to uh, play a violin or shed a tear for me this morning. Uh, what I want to do is point your attention to the Apostle John because the Apostle John had it much, much worse than any of us today could ever imagine. Um, when you consider his ministry, it puts a whole lot in perspective. Let's talk, let's talk about him for just a moment. We're going to have to do something about that. John is now an old man. John's lived to the end of that first century right around 96 A.D. I don't mean today. It's okay. I don't know what you're going to... Okay. Uh, so right around that 96 A.D., he had lived to see Jerusalem destroyed, not exalted, not elevated. And, his pro and prophecy had said that Israel would be exalted and elevated and Jerusalem would be a holy city. But he didn't see that. He watched it as his home was obliterated, and everyone scattered, and thousands of Jews murdered, and his nation ended. Can you imagine that? John had also outlived every one of his fellow apostles, all of which had been martyred. He knew they were all with Jesus, but each one of them, his friends, his brothers at arms, were murdered by Christ-haters. And here John is on this island called Patmos. And, and it's essentially just a rock about five miles wide and ten miles long. And here, the beloved, the one whom the Lord Jesus called His beloved disciple, was there as a convicted criminal serving out a sentence. Verse 9 says He was there. Listen to this. May it be. He was there because he was a faithful witness to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's what made him a criminal. 
So they didn't kill him like the others, although they tried. Tradition says they tried to boil him in oil and he didn't die. And so they exiled him instead. And John lived, continued to live quite a while after that. But instead they exiled him to a prison colony with only the clothes on his back, very little food, and get this, at his age he was forced to do hard prison labor. How discouraged must John have been when he looks around and looks at his life and he sees the state of the church? What must he be thinking? The last apostle, though separated from all the other church, he was still the last apostle and the overseer of all the churches and particularly these seven churches in Asia Minor. We'll see that five of the seven of these churches had basically gone off track from one degree to the other Two were faithful, some were a mix of good and bad, and and some were just absolutely useless to the Lord Jesus whatsoever. Let's look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. So he's saying here, I'm hanging in this with you. I'm, I'm in the middle of this persecution. I'm dealing with it too. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So this was a Sunday, and this was a Sunday that he wasn't sitting there wallowing in discouragement about the state of things. He was in the Spirit. He was ready. He was in the right place for God to give him this very revelation. He's about to be transported outside of space and time. I'm certain it would have been similar to how in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul described it when he was caught up into the third heaven. It was so real to Paul that he, it was indistinguishable whether or not he was in his body or out of his body. He didn't know if it was a physical thing or a spiritual thing. He couldn't tell which. So continuing on, John says, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So trumpets, if you'll recall back at Mount Sinai, there were loud earth-shaking trumpet blasts when, uh, when God was up uh, on the mountain. And, uh, and this is the same premise. So the trumpet gets his attention, and he's ready to receive this divine revelation from the Lord. And now he knows why he hasn't died yet. Like, this is validation for him. I'm not dead because he's not done. How encouraging that must have been for this weary soul, for his broken body at his age. Verse 11, saying, Write in a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. So basically, John, write down everything you see in this vision from beginning to end, and then write seven scrolls, handwritten copies, and send them out to these seven churches in this area. And then the letters would then be copied in those churches and dispersed to all the rest of the churches. Then in verse 12, we see seven golden lampstands. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. You ask, you ask, well, 
how do I know that those represent the churches? Well, because down in verse 20, if you'll just peek down there, it's no mystery. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. That's not hard, is it? Just tells you, no mystery there. These lampstands are symbols of the seven churches mentioned before, but beyond that, because the number seven is a symbol of perfect completion in God, these seven churches symbolize all churches in every period of time until the completion of the church, until the bride of Christ has been made ready. They can be pictured situated in a circle on the map in order, clockwise, like, like the, the track of the hands of a clock would point to. However, these lampstands were not permanent. These were portable lampstands. They didn't have electricity, remember? So in their day and time, they had small oil lamps filled with oil, and they would drop a wick down in the jar and light it, and then they would take that jar and they would put it on lampstands. And it would elevate the, the lamps up to the height that the light would get above what you needed to see, and, and then you could move these things around as needed. But each one of these lampstands were situated representing those seven churches, and as I said, the timeless church. But in verse 13, we see the most important part. He says, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. John saw his beloved friend, but more so his Lord Jesus standing in the middle of these lampstands, in the middle of the church, the light of the world. This was John's vision. Jesus standing in the middle of his timeless church. Yes, the seven literal churches that existed in that day, but even more so the church across the ages including us. These lampstands were pure gold, and this represents the value and the worth of the church of God as, as uh, Christ bought us and laid down His life and poured out His precious blood to purchase His church, and the golden stands represent that. Prior to this vision, though, what must have been the questions in John's mind given Again, the state of the church and his situation. Does Jesus still care about his true church? Does Jesus know that his church is in such a beaten down and persecuted state? Does Jesus understand what's actually going on and how bad this is? Is Jesus aware of the attacks from outside of the church and the attacks that are rising up from within the church with false teachers? Jesus he must have thought, what are you doing in your church now? Creation was finished. His work of atonement was finished. He resurrected, He ascended. So what are you doing now, Lord? And this vision gave John his answer. Jesus is right in the middle of it all. He's right in the middle of the good and the bad that we face as the body of Christ. Now this context sets us up for great understanding of this passage, and here's a noteworthy point that Christ is always in the midst of His true church. 
He's always moving in the, in the middle of things. And we should never doubt that. No matter how ugly things look and how bad things get, I'll tell you something. You know, COVID was a terrible thing for a lot of people, but I'll tell you what it did do. It shut down a lot of churches. And it shut down a lot of bad churches. Many of the churches that folded were churches that were not being faithful to the Word of God. You think God doesn't have the ability, using the circumstances of the world, to call out and purify His body? Of course He does. And that, folks, should give you great peace today, knowing that He is actively at work in the churches and in each and every one of our lives. And here's another thing I want you to think about. This also means, because it represents even us today, when you're in the midst of true fellow believers, His true church, you are actually communing with Christ Himself in the way that He designed for believers to commune together, in the way that He established His church. That's what this is all about. The church, people are tossing the gathering, the congregation of the church, they're tossing it aside like like an old dirty rag. People don't know the value of the church. We have to know the value of the church. The Bible says He inhabits His true church, and He will never forsake His true church. Now let's look back at, at verse 13. That title, the Son of Man, is taken from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, And Daniel says, and Daniel is like the revelation. The book of Daniel is like the revelation of the Old Testament. It's the prophetic book of the Old Testament. And Daniel says, one like the Son of Man, he uses that phrase and he's talking about the coming Messiah. And when you read through the Gospels, Jesus identified himself often as the Son of Man. Here is what... Daniel actually said about him. He is given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people and nations and men of every language will serve him. Also, his kingdom is everlasting and it will never be destroyed. So Daniel is the one who introduces Christendom to the Son of Man as a messianic title. Now in verse 13, we see Christ in John's vision is wearing a robe, a priestly robe, which is really significant and we need to take note of it. It says on that robe, that priestly robe that that identifies him as a a priest, he's wearing a golden sash. Back in Exodus 28 and 29, you find that the high priest wore a sash. But Christ's sash is different. It's golden, which signifies his preeminence, his superiority as the highest of high priests. He outshines them all. As the high priest, though, listen to this. He is praying for his church. He's praying for his true church constantly. Every second, Christ is praying for you. Now, if you want to know what he's praying for you, you can get an idea if you go to John 17 and you read first that high priestly prayer. You don't have to turn there, but that's a Bible study for you at home later, and he starts out first by focusing primarily on his disciples, praying for them, and then he turns his attention to those who come after them. Now moving into verse 14, we we move from 
what Christ is wearing to what Christ actually looks like. And this is really something. So really try to let this sink in. Verse 14, And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. So we're seeing a picture of the eternal, exalted Christ in all of His majestic glory, at least as best as John could describe Him. His head and His hair were white like wool, like snow. Now I want you to picture if you've ever been out in the snow in a noonday sun and the, the, the sun reflecting off of the snow. The word white here in Greek does not describe like a flat white that you and I know, but a blazing white, a burn-your-eyes white, okay? I'm just going to say it because you guys make fun of me. It's like a lightsaber being lit up. It's like glowing and, you know, it, it, it burns your eyes. That's what we're talking about. His head and his hair were blazing with his glory. What does that mean? It means the risen Christ is forever uncorrupted by evil. It is His pure, infinite holiness emanating as light from His being, His blazing glory for all to see. It says His eyes were like a flame of fire. And it's interesting to note, Daniel said the exact same thing. His eyes were as flaming torches. So from His blazing, infinite holiness, from His eyes came two penetrating streams like laser beams shooting forth from his eyes. Sorry, Superman, Jesus had it first, right? But that's what you can picture. This is his perfect, penetrating, omniscient discernment, his holy intelligence. I think about you know Solomon and the whole story with the, the two women who were fighting over a baby. That wouldn't even... He had to make a decision based upon just what he knew. But Christ's eyes are... He's the perfect judge in that He sees everything. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing secret from His penetrating gaze. All is revealed. Every intention of every created being. All sin is visible in this penetrating light. You're not hiding a thing from God. That's why Scripture tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. There's a reckoning. You don't get away with it. This makes Christ, as I said, the perfect judge. Next, verse 15. His feet his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. Red hot glowing feet. And these are feet that represent His holy judgment against sin within His church. Imagine those feet burning as they were described. Stepping on a believer who was still continuing in their habitual sin. What happens with pressure and heat? It's purification. That's how diamonds are made, right? Purification, pressure and heat. And that's what's pictured here. He uses his feet as a form of judgment, hot, glowing feet that are burning like bronze, glowing hot 
and the pressure that comes from that. You see, His true church reflects His holiness. And to make that so, Christ will judge His church if there's sin in His church. He doesn't abide sin in the local church. And to that point, you know, His first command to the church, I don't know if you know this or not, is actually in the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. His first command to the church, and this is what He says. If someone continues in sin, you go to them and you confront their sin. If they refuse to repent, you take two or three witnesses together and you confront their sin a second time. If they still refuse to repent, you remove them from the local fellowship. He protects the purity of His church. And look, we've read that judgment begins in the house of God. It's our job first, and it's best that the church deal with sin issues from within rather than letting God deal with the issue Himself. Because if He steps in, well, let's just say, anybody recall the story in Acts where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit? They dropped dead right in front of the church, and they carried their bodies out of the church. And I'm telling you, God is not beyond that kind of judgment today. He will not allow a true believer to bring reproach to His church. Now, the unbelievers in the church, they do whatever. But if you're a true believer and you turn back to sin for a period and you won't turn back, you better believe God will do something about it. Let's look at the next part. It says, His voice was like the sound of many waters. One of the, one of the things that visitors say about the Isle of Patmos when you go is it's just this long skinny island and it's surrounded by large rocks and the waves are crashing against the rocks. It's, it's like a surround sound. It's coming from all directions. There's no sand there to absorb the sound. So it's loud, it's thunderous and noisy. And this is how John describes his voice, the sound of many waters. In Ezekiel 43, that was a metaphor that people used when they wanted to talk about something that was just deafening loud and it commanded your attention, almost like your knees would buckle when you would hear it. Well, what does it mean in the context of, the, of His true church? Well, first of all, God doesn't whisper. He commands His truth and His Word. He speaks with authority through the Word of God to His church. It's in black and white. There's no guessing. Verse 16, And having in His right hand seven stars. He's holding these stars in his hand. But what are these stars? Well, down in verse 20, it says that uh, it calls them angels, and that's because the word is angelos. And it's often translated as angels, but the actual translation, if you want to be correct about it, it's messengers, the messengers. So the stars here are the messengers in the church, the shepherds, the pastors, the elders of his true church across all the ages, and he's holding these overseers of his true church in the palm of his right hand, the hand of power. You guys know in those old movies where there's the king, and the king always has the hand of the king. He's the right-hand man of the king. This pictures that 
the messengers of Christ are those He holds in His hand. His right-hand men are these messengers through the ages that are proclaiming the gospel in those churches. And He will never allow His church to go without faithful leaders. And He may have to scrape the bottom of the barrel sometimes, as in my case, uh, but Christ will always have godly leaders leading His true church. So far in this vision, we see that Christ is alive and active in the middle of His church, His true church. He is praying for His true church. He is disciplining His true church as needed. He is leading His true church through the godly leadership of His right-hand men, His messengers. Now look at verse 16. Christ is protecting His church. A sharp two-edged sword which comes out of His mouth. Well, what's the sword for? Well, remember His feet were the instruments of judgment in this vision. But what is the purpose of the sword? Turn real quick over to chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. And look at verse 16. He says, Therefore repent, but if not, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Against whom? Well, very clearly, it's the false teachers that were mentioned in the previous verses there in chapter 2. Here we go again, false teachers. This is, a, this is a very large broadsword with a double edge, and it, it cuts in any direction you swing it. And Jesus is in the middle of His true church, and He's protecting His true church. Now in 2 Peter, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in, inspired Peter to instruct the church to be able to recognize false teachers. And then the Spirit, once again, in Jude, as we read earlier, He repeated it in the book of Jude. And then the Spirit, once again, warned in the final letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all three, saying that holding to the truth is vital in the church. We are the pillar of the truth. We are the pillar of the truth. And the church is responsible for upholding the truth of God's Word in a darkened, desperate world. It's on us. We're warned in Scripture over and over and over again not to listen to anyone who teaches or, or uh, manipulates or twists Scripture or says anything contrary to Scripture. And we, though we are all concerned about that, we see here in Scripture that Christ is even more concerned about it. And because of that concern, He protects His church. How does He protect His church? We just heard those seven stars in His right hand. Elders who are committed above all else to getting Scripture right and proclaiming the gospel unapologetically with boldness no matter if they die like those former apostles or if they live. It's always those men pointing the flock to the Scriptures, proclaiming boldly what God has said. Thus saith the Lord. Yes. Put an exclamation point on the end of it. Remember, He holds them in His right hand, that hand of power. And that's how He protects His church. And then the last statement, His face was like the sun shining in its power. 
This means that His glory shines through His true church. 2 Corinthians 4 says, He shines in us to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We, we get to be a part of that. His true church. He's shining in us. His glory is reflected in us, emanating, radiating from us, His true church. And we get to shine forth the face of Christ to the whole world. And this is what His true church will do. His true church will shine forth His glory. So don't be discouraged. Because I know we can look at the spectacle of the visible church in the world today and it can be very discouraging, but this vision of Christ in the midst of His true church should get you excited this morning. We have an opportunity now more than ever as the more dark the world gets, the more opportunity you and I have to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want to talk to you guys, my people, our, our folks, our family. With all of my heart, I want to see a pure church. And that's my deepest desire for all of you here. But as we grow, there are going to be some folks who just don't get it. There are always those in the local church who refuse to submit to Christ's lordship and the authority of His word. They're described as goats butting heads you know, with the truth, pushing back on the truth of Scripture. And in their pride, they seek their own way. And this is how Paul described them. Paul was often heartbroken, and he wept at the lack of unity and pride of some in the visible church and what they demonstra demonstrated in their, their sinful lives and how it brought shame and reproach to Christ's bride. Those of us in leadership who are called and burdened in our hearts to share the gospel, to make an eternal difference in the lives of families, when we see what God's Word says and we know what it really says, and then you see in contrast how many professing believers are living, literally sacrificing their families to this culture. How can the pastor not be broken when we see this? How can we not feel the perpetual weight of caring for those in the church that we genuinely love? My calling, as I said before, is not organizational or administrative skills, but if it was, I would fall drastically short. My calling and what I will be held accountable for is the spiritual care of the people in this room and those the Lord brings here. I will stand before God and I will give an account for how I care for you and your families. With all of my heart, I do not want to be defined in this church as led by the visible cultural church trends. We have to be able to recognize what His true church stands for and what the world's church being 
uh, penetrated in the church, in the true church, in the visible church, we need to be able to differentiate between both. And we have various forms of the gospel today. Self-help gospels, social justice gospels, the prosperity gospel, philosophical gospels, psychological gospels. They want to look to everything except Christ who was crucified. And I want you all to be a product of the true gospel of Jesus Christ so that you will have deep fellowship with Christ and not something superficial or shallow. Because those are a dime a dozen. They're all around us. I desire for people who are the church to seek accountability with one another, yes. But more importantly, that you would yield to the Spirit of God, truly, that you would see that you've been given power over temptation to endure trials and conquer sin in your life. He's already won the war. I pray for you to be faithful, to be strong, to be victorious and walk in the power of the Spirit every single day of your life. This will lead to the holiness of each individual believer and the believer who has the mind of Christ the believer who reflects the nature of Christ and sees that fruit overflowing in their life. This personal holiness of the individual leads to the purity of his true church in doctrine and in the way we corporately conduct ourselves as his body and his representatives. My desire is your pastor is that you would understand the authority of the Word of God and that you and your family would be sanctified, and that you would be protected by it. Sanctified by the Word of God, and protected by the Word of God. I long for those godly leaders, as mentioned in this passage, to rise up, even within this local body, and set a holy example for God's people. Lead them from the hand of Christ. And I desire that this church will be protected from the unholy, satanic schemes of the devil in the form of false teaching from within and from without the walls of these, this church. I want to say something, and I hope you'll listen to me. Who you listen to, what you read, what you expose yourself to, even the influences that you think are good and beneficial and exciting, the good influences can crowd out and cause you to miss the most vital thing that you are desperate for, and that is true intimacy with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can crowd Him out and not even mean to because you're latching on to things that you think are good and you're crowding out. And to get to that point of true intimacy with Christ, it may require you to let go of many of the good things so that you will be overflowing in His best for you and your family. The pastor is pretty aware of those in the congregation who truly get it. It's pretty easy to see. Those who are consumed by Him, who make... Him and His mission a first priority in their lives. And I pray for you all because I know it's so hard 
There are so many distractions out there today, and there are so many things in the world to draw your attention and to gain your affection. It's everywhere. So many shiny things. And it's harder sometimes if you've been raised in the church because we've often uh, been indoctrinated with traditions or trends or works or blessings or prosperity or success, all of these things in our mind that we connect to godliness that have no business being connected to the godliness that God's Word speaks of. And so it causes us to then ask questions. Well, why why do we do what we do? Why do we live the way we live? Are we simply just kind of slaves to our culture? The only way to know what He meant for us is to get into the Word of God. The truth doesn't change over time. If we hold on to those things that occupy the space in our life, in our heart, and in our mind. The the space that could be given to Christ, as I said, you may very well be right on the edge of true intimacy with, with Christ and never step across that line and experience what it's like to truly know Him and walk with Him every day. Finally, I desire that this church will truly reflect Christ's holy glory, the glory of the gospel and the risen sovereign Christ, who God's word tells us right now sits at the right hand of the Father and he will return and every eye will see him and he brings his reward with him. Some people are gonna get a good reward. Some people are gonna get a reward they could never have imagined. And that is why we have to do what Scripture tells us to do as His body. Because only in that, as we preach the true gospel, we will see many drawn to His beautiful face and the glory of His salvation.